All right. Well, we're seeing everyone uh, tune in. Thanks, everyone, uh, for joining us so far. Uh, we're really excited to have you. Thanks for tuning in. This is Hungry for Change, our panel event for addressing campus food insecurity across the province. Uh, my name is Trevor Potts. I'm the Research and Policy Analyst with College Student Alliance, uh, the Ontario's leading provincial voice for our college students. Uh, I'm super excited to have each of you join us. Uh, we're looking forward to all the uh, action-packed agenda items we've got this evening. Um, so we'll get started right on time and kind of get launched into it. And so with all that to, um, I'll pass this off to our moderator for the night, Gabby. Thank you. Thanks everyone for joining. Um, I'm sorry about my voice. I'll try to do my best here. Um, I'm currently recovering. Um, so I'm Gabby Hensky. My pronouns are she, her, as you can see on the screen next to my name. Um, I currently study international development at Hummer College and I work as a resident community assistant. And I'm also a director with the College Student Alliance and Ignite. Um, so I'm going to be moderating this amazing panel. Um, and just so that everyone who's watching and tuning in um, knows, like this is a nonpartisan event, we're coming together uh, to discuss the issue at hand food insecurity. Um, and just so that everyone has a very clear definition of what it is. Food insecurity is the inability to access sufficient quantity or variety of food because of financial constraints. Um, this is a definition from Statistics Canada. So um, for the first 30 minutes of this conversation, we're going to be focusing mostly um, on the context of provincial advocacy for food insecurity. Then we're going to have a break and come back for another 30 minute conversation block uh, with a more narrow scope considering campus food insecurity challenges. And then we're gonna have um, a Q&A session so that attendees can address questions to the panelists. So um, today I'm joined by Mike Schreiner, Guelph MVP and leader of the Ontario Green Party, Suman Roy, who's the executive director of New Exchange, Lindsay Walker, associate director, Office of Sustainability at Humber College, Fatia um, from Good Food Market um, Food Share, Ross and Lee, Networking Lead at Toronto Food Youth Policy Council, Christine, uh, Manager, Leadership and Advocacy at Ignite, and Michelle Phillips uh, from Ignite, the Student Engagement Coordinator for Knowledge Campus. Um, so to kick things off, um, I would love it if each one of you could just briefly introduce yourselves um, in terms of um, how your work currently intersects with food security. So um, I would love it if um, Mike, you'd start it, and then um, I can call someone else to do after you. Well, thanks, Gabby, and uh, thank you to the College Student Alliance for hosting this and the Mill Exchange for just the great work that you're doing. Uh, I don't know how many of you know, prior to me going into politics, uh, I've started a couple uh, local organic food um, distribution businesses and also helped start an organization called uh, Local Food Plus, which was all about how do we get healthy, local, culturally appropriate, sustainable food, uh, particularly on university campuses and college campuses and in other public institutions. And throughout my entire career, I've really worked on food security, both from a secure supply and also accessing that supply. And particularly when it comes to being able to access, you know, healthy, local, sustainable, culturally appropriate food, um, the biggest barrier really comes down to income and poverty. 
And, and so I don't think we're going to address food security and food justice until we ensure that we address poverty. And so I think one of the things that politicians can do right now is approach policies like doubling social assistance rates. So people who are on Ontario Works, Ontario Disability Support, don't have to survive with legislative poverty. Um, reversing the cuts to OSAP and, and shifting um, from more uh, um, loans to grants so young people can actually afford a post-secondary education and aren't forced you know, to have to choose between, you know, paying for their courses or the place to live and, and food. Uh, I think also by addressing the housing affordability crisis, I mean, my gosh, in Toronto, you know, a minimum wage worker has to work almost 90 hours a week just to be able to afford a one bedroom apartment. And so again, when people are having to, oftentimes people will choose uh, out of necessity to put like pay their rent and so they have a place to live. And then oftentimes they don't have enough money for food. And, you know, we're seeing that particularly on, on college and university campuses and, and just also in the increasing number of people accessing food banks to just survive every week. And we're talking in many cases, uh, people who are employed uh, and actually have jobs, which just shows you the need to address things like low wage work by increasing minimum wage. So I think there's a, I could go on and on, but there's a whole range of ways in which um, we need to ensure that people have enough money to be able to afford the food they want that's appropriate for them uh, and that they have a choice in accessing that food. Uh, I think in the long term, you know, I want to see food banks eliminated, uh, but I think in the short term, supporting organizations, especially college and university um, food banks, and I would say to expand those to think of them more as food empowerment centers where people can not only access, you know, culturally appropriate food that meets their needs, but can also learn, um, you know, food preparation skills and maybe participate in a community garden and grow their own food um, and, and access community kitchens. So, you know, you can, you can cook communally with, with others uh, and just, just really be more empowered in terms of your food. And so I think, I think government has a role in supporting those kinds of institutions and organizations as well. And, and I think all of you have an opportunity to put pressure on all of us, regardless of which political party we represent to deliver those kinds of policy solutions. Thank you. Um, so now, uh, moving on to Suman, if you could just please introduce yourself and your work, how that relates to the topic that we're exploring today. Thanks a lot, Gabby, and welcome all. Uh, I have nothing to say. Mike said it all. <laughs> but Ed, uh, with uh, Mike, I worked in the past, and when I say past, before his political career and when he was starting up Local Food Plus, and we have the same passion for local food on post-secondary campuses. Currently, I'm the executive director at Meal Exchange, uh, who works from coast to coast to coast on food insecurity uh, on post-secondary campuses. Uh, we have worked on over 75 campuses across the country. Currently, we are at around 40 campuses uh, at present. Uh, but in uh, theory, Mike touched all the really important points that we advocate for and we believe in. So I'm sure over the next uh, little while, we're gonna talk about all of those. 
Awesome. Thank you. Now, uh, Fatiha, if you want to introduce yourself as well as your work. For sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Fatia, and I work at FoodShare, supporting the Good Food Market program. So for those of you that are unfamiliar with FoodShare and the program that I support, FoodShare is a food justice organization that supports the city of Toronto um, since uh, 1985. Um, so we support a number of projects supporting like urban agriculture, um, community-led solutions, and grassroots groups, as well as um, learning more about food literacy and, and food empowerment and food knowledge and food skills in the kitchen, um, among a number of other, an, a number of other initiatives, um, namely one of them being, um, you know, our advocacy piece and our advocacy campaign around the right to food, um, which is a call to city council to revisit our um, food charter um, and to implement more food justice to ensure that that um, is that those those legislated promises become more um, become more implemented across the city? Um, so the program that I support is the Good Food Market program. So my program supports um, a number of different um, neighborhoods um, and stakeholders in those neighborhoods to start fresh produce markets. So these are not food share. Uh, markets. These are markets that we support through supplying produce as well as supporting them through community de development initiatives um, to help them bring solutions to their neighborhoods, whether they're in food deserts or, you know, they're in a neighborhood with a lot of folks who have very high needs. It's really about co-collaborating and, and, and ensuring that the people that are most affected by food security are the ones leading the projects um, with food share supporting along. So that's a little bit about me. Thank you so much. Amazing. Yeah, I'm fascinated by food share's work. It's incredible. Um, now, Lindsay, if you could just please introduce yourself briefly as well as your work and how it intersects with food security. Yes, hi everyone. Um, yeah, my name is Lindsay Walker. I'm the Associate Director of the Sustainability Program at Humber College. Um, been there for coming on to 10 years. Um, and so where I come to this, well, I'm on the college campus. I have students coming to us talking about what they need and what they think about sustainability and food comes up all the time, has for years. Um, you know, uh, I also get calls about recycling and all the other things that people would think of when they think of sustainability. But um, I also spend a lot of time making sure that it's not just about recycling. And food is one that we all understand, we all need to have every day. We can talk, I can make those very obvious to me connections between social justice and sustainability and our environment and how these things have to, the solutions for climate change and climate action are the same, one and the same of, of food and and our, and helping our communities. So uh, yeah, so food has been something that we've worked on in lots of different ways over the years. Um, we try our best to track things and, and do, do better and work with our contractor on that, um, but it's difficult. And I, I think we'll get into that with the questions in the next little bit here, but um, that's what I do, and that's where I'm. Why I'm here. I'm not the expert on any of the other things that everyone's talked about, but I'm definitely on on the ground, and would love to. And are working to try and make it better on on the campus because of all the reasons everyone else has explained. It's it's a key place to make change. 
Yes, awesome. Um, thank you. Um, now for uh, Rawson, if you could introduce yourself as well and a little bit of your work. Well, thank you, everybody. Hi, uh, thanks again to CSA and Humber. Go Hawks. I'm happy to be here and speaking with some incredible people today. So my name is Rawson Lee. Um, right now, I'm perhaps best known for being the networking co-lead at the Toronto Youth Food Policy Council. And that's a volunteer-run youth group within the city. Thank you. <laughs> and our focus is um, getting youth involved in civic engagement, advocacy, and all different types of representation within the food systems of Toronto. So all sorts of things from, of course, food insecurity and food access, as well as uh, migrant worker rights, the whole range is there. And so today I'll be talking a lot about um, my priorities based on that group, which is uh, youth involvement and community building and social connectedness. So I'm glad to be connecting all with you today. And yeah. Incredible. I love your energy. <laughs> if only I had like 20% of that today. <laughs> um, and now, Christine, if you could uh, please introduce yourself and some of your work as well. Hi, good evening, everyone. I'm Christine Galvin. I'm the manager of leadership and advocacy with Ignite. So Ignite is the student union that represents Humber and the University of Gold Humber students. Um, we have signed on to be part of uh, CSA, so happy to be here this evening. Um, a lot of the work that we do is to amplify students' voice and like the, the issues that students face outside of the classroom. A lot of that has to do with, um, you know, affordability, improving their campus experience, um, financial aid, and improving health and wellness, um, as well as increasing uh, like a collective sense of belonging, which if you dig deeper into any of those categories, um, food, and access to food can be found um, across the board. Um, one, it does unify all students, but it also separates students um, with who they are and, and what they're able to have on campus and to be a successful student. Um, so that's some of the great work that we get to do, uh, Mashonda and I. Um, and yeah, so happy to be here. Thank you. And yeah, now finally, off to Mishanda, uh, if you can introduce yourself as well. Sure. Hi, everyone. I should say also, like Gabby, I'm also a little bit sick, so my voice go in and out. Um, but yeah, so my name is Mishanda Phillips. I'm a student advocate um, with Ignite. So essentially what Christine said, I just, um, whenever issues our students might have, I advocate on their behalf. One thing I'm really passionate about is um, food insecurity and how we can make food secure for everyone. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So now we're going to dive right into the questions that I have prepared for you. Um, in the first time slot, um, we're going to speak mostly focusing on provincial policy. Um, and again, I'll just reiterate, like, even if a question is not directed to you, uh, to a specific panelist, um, if you feel like you have additional points to make, feel free to like raise your hand on the Zoom and then um, I can call on you after the person that was <laughs> specifically um, asked the question had already their chance to answer it. Um, so starting with Lindsay, um, looking at the context at Humber, could you speak on some of the challenges and opportunities that exist when it comes to the availability of affordable and healthy foods? Because I know that this is a very hot topic among students on campus and love to just have more insight on this. 
Yeah. So, and I, I'm sure other panelists will have other ideas. Like what comes to mind in this moment on this panel will not be all the full everything, but um, the food system is is the main challenge, I think. Um, and a layer of that is the way in which contracts on campuses with the food service providers are set up. So there's that, there's a system there that's a little more local to the campus because each campus can set up their own contracts. Um, but there are, and what I've learned over the many years is that there are two or three different versions of a contract. One, you can be self doing it all yourself and hiring and, and having the chefs and it's all in-house, which allows you to have much more control. So that's like your best best case scenario of what you serve and how you how much it costs for you to make it and then how you how much it can cost therefore for students to buy it what you want to serve like you have control and the, then there are two other types of contracts that are essentially um, a little bit halfway in between so it's not in-house but you have someone else doing it but they you're, you're more in partnership I don't know the right wording of that off the top of my head but there is a word for it and then the third one is what we're in at Humber which is um, sort of like the, the contractors there and they sell whatever they sell, we get to ask and we do get say in what they offer to some degree, um, but they need to make money. And, they, and then Humber gets a, a piece of that back to help with student bursaries. There's lots of things that we use that money for that's very beneficial and important for, for us as well for, and for our students. Um, but what that contract does is sets us in a way of how things must be. So when you go and ask about doing something, it's, well, it might cost a little more, we can't, um, the pricing is set in a certain way. And what's happened, at least at Humber, is for consistency and pricing needs, we end up having a lot of brands on campus. So I, almost 80%, I think, of what food is served on campus right now is Tim Hortons and Starbucks and Pizza Pizza and Subway. And, and um, those aren't, you know, maybe Subway, some of the stuff at Subway, but like, no, that's not healthy food. Um, but it is affordable and the students know what they're getting out of it. They know what they're paying. They, the pricing is equivalent. So, but yeah. And then there's the system behind and I'm trying to want to go quickly because there's so many folks that have lots to say, but the other, the food system behind that is like when we go and ask our food service provider to make changes, usually the first thing will also be, or the second thing might be well, we, I don't know if we can get that or, oh, well, we have to, you know, there's all this, this weeds that are in front of them to ask for certain things through the distributors, the larger companies, the Cisco and the GFS. And, um, and so you try, we've tried to go sort of to them and say, all right, well, even just to know what we're serving, let alone changing it. Um, and the tracking of the food is, seems to be non-existent in the system. So that's really tough. And then we're still up against another challenge, which would be like healthy food seemingly costing more money, local food seemingly costing more money. Not always. And I know, I think many of us know that's not actually necessarily true in all cases, but it does seem to be something we continue to run into. So like we want to have healthier food in the vending machine. And you look at the pricing list of the healthier options versus the ones um, that we have now. And there's a difference. And so when we're talking today about affordability, okay, we could make the choice of healthy foods, but the students, it's less affordable. And when we look at it a month or two later, we try things out, the students aren't necessarily buying them. So then 
we can't keep them in there. Um, it's just difficult. So um, those are challenges. Opportunities are that Humber Colleges and every college and campus is a place to test things out. Like we and we can advocate and we can work with all these wonderful partners and we have with some of some of them here uh, to do better and make it better. And and um, I think anyone who has chatted with me or worked with me over the years know that we are working really hard at doing that. So um, we have an ability to make a really big impact. The amount of money that is spent on campuses for food is a lot. Um, so we need to do better and, and, and we're here working on it and hope, hope that some change can happen. Um, I, don't, I wanna leave it at that. There are a whole bunch of little small projects that Gabby, you know a lot about them on Humber campus um, that we're doing to do something in our little community and wonderful things, soup bar and the gardens project and the garden at Lake at North, our culinary department. There's lots of stuff that we try to do, but it's not the big impact stuff that, that really needs to happen. So, thanks. Yeah, there are definitely lots of different opportunities, but also challenges and limitations, um, specifically in regards to logistics and bureaucracy in a college. Um, so that has, uh, that slows down progress. So when I see your, uh, your hand is raised, go ahead. Hi, thanks, Gabby. I think I, there is one thing that I want to mention, and uh, Lindsay said everything so about so pragmatic and the issues that she's seeing. But I think the main issue that we see why the students are not getting what they want is the campuses, and this is across the country, are not really recognizing food as a right. And that itself is the issue. Food is a human right. And I think that systematically needs to be understood. And that is why food in every campus across the country is sitting in ancillary services and not in student life. And that I think is a very systemic problem that we have. If it went into a student life, then resources would flow a lot better from the province to the campuses, to the students, towards the food that would actually help the food system. Um. So uh, now to Mike, um, from an experienced perspective as an MPP and interested in food issues as you are, would you say that there is more that the Ontario government could do in addressing food insecurity? Yeah, there's a lot more the Ontario government could do. And I can tell you in my pre-political life, I experienced every barrier that Lindsay talked about in dealing with numerous colleges and universities, long-term care facilities, hospitals, et cetera. And I think one of the things government could do right away that I've been pushing for for a long time is have uh, minimum purchasing mandates for all publicly funded institutions that would require them to hit targets for buying fresh, local, sustainable, culturally appropriate food. I think that would drive change uh, through the entire supply chain uh, because Lindsay's right. So often these big food suppliers and food service companies say it's too expensive or say it's too hard or say they can't do it or say they can't track it. But the minute you mandate it, especially through a publicly funded institution, they will figure out ways to fix all of that. Like this uh, for, for, for not delivering. So that's one. 
Two is, I think, adequately funding our public institutions. I mean, the fact that colleges and university funding in Ontario is the lowest per capita in the country. Uh, and so it puts incredible pressure on university budgets and college budgets, but also like long-term care homes, which I could, I want to group everyone in public institution, but the government mandates $9 of food for an entire day for an elder in long-term care. Um, which gets to the whole issue around food as a human right. Like you can't feed people on $9 a day. You can't feed people healthy food on, on $9 a day. You can't access culturally appropriate food for folks. And so I think the province has, has a, play a huge role in that regard. And finally, I'll just be really quick and say that I think the province can do more uh, to support um, the supply chains that support uh, local sustainable farmers and food supply chains, everything from providing funding support uh, for um, uh, processing, um, freezing, canning, things like that. Uh, so we can um, have local food available year round, uh, providing some of the funding supports to make sure that infrastructure and those supply chains are, are, are in place. And I think, making it conditional on ensuring that um, those farms and suppliers uh, comply with Employment Standards Act and making sure those are applied uh, to um, seasonal workers uh, and, and ensuring that we have adequate wages throughout the entire food supply chain. And then finally, I get back to the issue, and I, I don't want to overemphasize this, but, you know, is, around is, addressing issues of income security and ensuring that everyone has um, enough money to live on, uh, housing affordability to, to access, et cetera. Uh, so they are empowered to make choices around the food they buy. And then finally, I would say, and I, 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 it's great to see somebody on the Toronto Food Policy Council. I was on it when I was a youth as well, probably dating myself. And I actually worked out of the food share warehouse a way long time ago when it was way back on Eastern Avenue. And, um, and with just to say that I think the government can provide additional funding support um, for food policy councils in communities and on campuses across the province, providing funding support for organizations you know, like Food Share and other food security organizations for all the just amazing programming work they do and all the beneficial economic spinoffs of that work. Because I know when I was, you know, doing work with Food Share, I mean, Food Share was a vital, vital purchaser supporting numerous local farms and then ensuring that food was accessible to, to you know, people, people in the community. And you know, doing a lot of really, you know, I think groundbreaking, I don't want to talk too much about food share, you can talk about it yourself, but also just groundbreaking work and supporting particularly um, um, black farmers and, and farmers who come from, you know, people, communities of color. And I, and I think the, there's so many multiplying benefits of that kind of work, that the small investments that the government can make in those kinds of organizations pay off far more, far more uh, in, in community benefits than what is actually paid out uh, through public coffers. That was a very thorough answer. And you already organically led through to my next question. So that was perfect. So uh, now Fatia, for you, 
so considering your own lived experiences and your current work with Food Share, that recently just launched a campaign, as you said before, for a new Toronto food charter that centers the experiences and the needs of marginalized communities who are mostly affected by food insecurity. What would you say are some important considerations for any kind of um, food security policy in addition to uh, what Mike just um, went over? Sorry about that. Yeah, no, definitely. Thank you, Mike, for highlighting all of Food Chair's work. Uh, we love having our cheerleaders. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, and so I think that food justice is really, really important at Food Chair. And so part of that means working together with our stakeholders and partners to dismantle systemic forms of oppression that have been baked into our food system, right? So what it means acknowledging that colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and other forms of oppression are continuing to dictate how people grow, sell, and access food. Um, right across this country. And so what I think is really important in any food policy or any uh, food security policy are three things. Um, so I'll try and keep it very brief. Um, it needs to be written and co-supported and, and, and co-collaborated on um, by marginalized communities who are the most affected by food insecurity to reflect their needs. So this means centering the leadership of people who experience the most food insecurity, which are, you know, Black, Indigenous, and other racialized peoples, peoples with disabilities, workers, and renters. Um, and I think another mechanism that is incredibly important is to include a mechanism that ensures that, you know, the body that would be um, supporting this, this food policy or any food policy um, is a, there is a mechanism for accountability to those communities that are impacted by its food policies. And number three is um, actually allocating sufficient funding and resources to realizing the right to food, right? And so that just means communicating with, you know, stakeholders and partners and, 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 and leaders in the community to say, how much money should we allocate and how should we distribute this more holistically? So, you know, I know there was kind of attempts, for example, at the city, um, the city level here in Toronto um, to kind of have a more holistic approach to food security. However, um, a lot of the work that was really being done was around like tourism and economic development. There wasn't enough resources being supported um, to support, for example, income supports or, you know, to support getting that food in the hands of people. And so I think this really ties back into um, the work that Mike is doing, the work that, you know, a lot of folks around this panel are doing in terms of making sure that we're advocating for the removal of those barriers um, that play such a consistent role when it comes to how people access food, right? So for example, especially during COVID, people have lost jobs, they haven't had sick days. Um, our minimum wage is 1550 or it's going to be 1550, which is a poverty wage when you think about living in the city of Toronto, you know. Um, we, we, you know, there's so many, you know, impacts and policies and legislations that need to be put in place, but also, um, you know, at our, at our, community levels, you know, employers, um, institutions and the like have to really take into consideration that food insecurity isn't just a question of, you know, providing more produce. If people can't afford to buy your produce and, you know, it will go to waste, right? So I think it's, it's a really interconnected, um, you know, 
I think it's a really interconnected approach and something like a food security policy really needs to take all of those considerations and as well include some of those mechanisms around including sufficient funding as well as a mechanism of accountability to ensure that, you know, we're actually walking the walk besides talking the talk. So, yeah. Yes, that was amazing. Thank you. And I should have contacted you for one of my assignments because you just summarized like lots of articles that I read in like under five minutes. So <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you. Um, and as well, you even just spoke on that a little bit yourself. Um, but food security is not only about the access to food itself. It's about so much more, right? Um, so Rawson, now for you, um, could you speak a little bit about how a living wage and poverty reduction practices promote food security? Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the work um, I've read was from uh, Dr. Valerie Tarasuk from University of Toronto. Yeah, I feel like once you do your school projects or once you start looking at food security, that's a name that will always pop up. And, and it's, what's very interesting is that, um, you know, all these issues are very connected together, food insecurity, poverty. And the fact of the matter is, is it's juggling resources the best that you can. And a lot of times, like it was mentioned before, it's either it's either rent or you eat. And then I feel like that's that's the poison about food insecurity is that it really takes away your ability to thrive when really you're focusing on surviving and you're focusing on, you know, what's tomorrow. So with that, too, like. I think that when you are food insecure and you're put in that position where you have to make those really hard choices, what you'll find is that you start to suffer in other places. And typically that's either housing or that's health or maybe even education. You can't participate anymore because you can't keep up with the cost. I think that what would happen if we were given a living wage is that a lot of people would be able to live more dignified and have the resources that they need and not only need, but to better themselves. I think really quickly, um, you know, I'm from Hamilton, Ontario, where they did the university basic income pilot. And I thought one article that was so interesting to me was that once it got scrapped and it wouldn't be continuing anymore, uh, I think the article talked to different people who are recipients. And then one person said, oh, or uh, some people said, you know, when I had my um, that income given to me, I was able to take another course and further my career, take training. But the one that really stood out to me was the person who said, I finally got glasses. And like, that's so interesting when you're focusing on food, you can, you have to, you have no choice to neglect something like not even being able to see properly and clearly. So I think living wage and poverty are definitely connected to what outcomes can happen with food insecurity. Yes. Well, that's a very powerful example. Yeah. Many people don't notice that. Um, Fatia, I see you have your hand raised. Yeah, um, thank you, Rosin, for that really great answer. I just wanted to include as well, I think there's a lot of um, neoliberal justifications for not providing, um, you know, income supports or not raising the rates on folks that are using Ontario Works or that are, you know, being supported by um, ODSP, for example. Um, so, you know, a lot of this argument comes down to, well, people just need to get a good job. You know, you know, there's a lot of these really tired and played out sort of um, rhetoric that ends up being institutionalized, whether that's in policy, whether that's in other forms of legislation. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, when people have enough to eat, it really makes such a difference in being, allowing them to make better decisions and make healthier decisions overall. Um, but it's also not in the place of government 
to be in people's kitchens, right? I think what is really important is that food sovereignty, eating, being able to eat and grow and have access to the food that you would like is really, really important. And so, you know, part of that has to be the conversation around housing. You know, part of that has to be the conversation around pharmacare or, or all of these essential pieces because really food insecurity is just another, um, it's just another symptom of, of, of legislating policy or sorry, legislating poverty. Um, so for example, my dad, he is, he has um, a couple of really um, not fatal, but you know, a lot of serious health conditions. And so he actually isn't able to physically work. So he is on um, Ontario benefits. But if my dad was a business owner for over 13 years, you know, he ran a, a franchise at the heart of downtown Toronto. So, you know, there's so many people like my dad who, because of circumstances, are not physically able to work. And especially with COVID um, and, and, and people experiencing the impacts of long COVID, the people with disabilities, they're just going to be rising. And so rather than stigmatizing this group of people through legislation and saying, hey, you know what, actually you deserve to live in poverty because your body doesn't comply with capitalism, it's so much more important to support those to be able to meet their basic needs, including food. So I think, I think that's also part of that conversation, just building on what um, Brasson had mentioned. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. Thank you. Um, so those are all the questions that I had now, for now. Um, we do have some panelists we have to leave. Um, just briefly, I would like to give um, the students attending here like the opportunity if they want to um, have any questions right now, just like very quickly, like one or two questions, we have time. Um, if you want to, you can raise your hand or just share that in the chat. Yeah, go ahead. Hello everyone, my name is Cabrielix Kotick. Um, I run the Ukrainian Student Club at Humber College. So Kristen and Michand are familiar with me. Um, essentially the question I had for everyone here is how are you going to implement having an actual food bank on campus? I mean, if you consider that we have 83,000 students, both full-time and part-time as a mix, that's the equivalent of a small city. Um, and I saw that we shared the soup uh, bar, which again, the great way to kind of like help students, but at the same time as someone who has used it, you know, it's not going to solve this, like the problem. I've been to other campuses where they do have food banks and it's been really active and as a like a good key tool in assisting students, given that some international students can't go to food banks, for example. Myself, I'm not an international student, but a lot of our club uh, members are. And especially right now during the middle of a war, um, you can't access those services. Because if you do do that, it can impact your permanent residency application in the future because um, you can't demonstrate that you have enough adequate funding in order to remain in the country. And then that's only for international students. Like uh, if you think about other students who are working full-time who are domestic students, um, such as myself, for example, you don't necessarily have the time in order to you know, go out and uh, get food 
Um, if you're on a campus, I know back in Ottawa where we have like food bank in our actual community, they addressed that by changing the hours. And we our food bank um, back in Ottawa is open from 6 p.m. until 8 p.m. at night, which gives people the opportunity if they need to take um, public transit. And in Toronto, I've noticed because I actually live over in Markham. So it's actually two and a half hours for me to get to campus one way to Lakeshore and one way back. So five hour travel time. So if you take all these things into consideration, and again, those are just some literally like small, small things. How are we going to open a food bank on campus and just make that happen? Because I think policy change, great idea and everything. But as someone, I don't, again, I asked this question when we were at the National Food Summit to those, I think some of you were attending. Um, and again, I don't think all of you were there, but nobody on your panels has ever been homeless like myself. Has never actually had to use a food bank since they were a young child. Never washed their hair with Tide soap because they didn't have hair soap because they couldn't go to the food bank and get some. Or because when you went there, there was none. So I think like policy change, great idea. But we need actual action and advocating can only go so far if you're not going to have tangible like solutions. So how are we going to bring a food bank to Humber College so that students can actually benefit from the support that they definitely need? Yeah, Fatia, go ahead. Um, hi, I just wanted to say that like, I really appreciate your perspective and thank you so much for sharing that question. The concerns that you're raising are very, very real. Um, and actually, I just wanted to mention too, like the reason that I actually became personally so passionate about doing food security work was I moved out at the age of 18 and had on my own, like no financial support from my parents. And um, I had to figure out how to feed myself and realized I didn't know how to. And, and then I realized really quickly that food was really expensive. And so part of me being able to do that work um, and address that on my campus, I went to the University of Toronto Scarborough, was we actually, I was part of an advocacy um, sort of coalition um, on my campus um, that really advocated for um, bringing food security materially to, to the campus. And so part of what we did was that we actually brought a motion to the student council, um, to the SCSU, which is the Scarborough Campus Students Union. We brought a camp, we brought a motion to open a food bank. So, and that was passed. And so the SCSU had to, you know, open a food bank on campus and they figured it out, right? So they were able to work with campus um, admin to find an appropriate space. They were able to get Second Harvest as a partner. Um, you know, they really leaned on a couple of other partnerships to make a food bank happen and have it be operational and accessible for students. So having that be a path forward is a really good opportunity um, because like you said, like students need food. And so that was the way that we were able to organize on our campus. But yeah, thank you so much for sharing your experience. Do you think that you could guide our school through that process though? Because at our school, given that we're our college at Lakeshore, mostly um, North Campus mostly represents like our students that have a four year, three to four year program. Um, some students that would want to help, right? They'll graduate and then they can't help anymore. Or sometimes they'll try, but you know, they're now trying to go into their own careers or continue their education at other campuses. Do you think that that's something that Neil Exchange can help with us to guide the school through that process and or to um, choose students regardless if they've graduated as alumni to help with that kind of programming? Because even if it won't necessarily benefit them, I'm sure that a lot of these students and myself included want to see others be able to benefit from that. And For so sure. if you're so, that's something that you can help with um, right. like from like your position, I, that would be really great. 
if that is something. Yeah, yeah. I would just say that I, I, I work at Food Share, not Meal Exchange, although Meal Exchange is amazing. I will say though, uh, my student camp, uh, like my former student union, the SCSU, um, I'm pretty sure their food share or their food bank is still operational. So I can, if you can just send me an email, I'll include my email in the in the chat. Um, and I can connect you to whoever's at the union right now, just to kind of have you stay connected with them and kind of figure out the logistics of what a food bag would actually look like on your campus. Okay, I'll, I'll do that below, thanks. Um, I saw that Suman had his raised, hand raised first, but I will let Christine go just because she can probably touch on the follow-up question that was just asked. Okay, so Christine, you can go ahead. Thank you so much. Um, I mean, great points. Um, some of the things that Ignite has um, attempted to do is like start a club at the Lakeshore campus so that it um, it's something that students can carry forward year over year with the support of Ignite. Um, one of the things that we tried just this past year, um, obviously the pandemic prevented a lot of that was just like a dry goods, take what you can or take what you need um, cupboard for students. Um, and un like, unfortunately, like a lot of the times, uh, things are just like not taken. Um, and so, or not taken or like things go to waste or like, um, it's just empty for weeks. So we did partner with, um, the, the music school in order to have like students, um, basically take care of it. Um, and Ignite was there to fund it and support it and like secure space and do things like that. Um, it didn't really get the kickoff that we wanted to see because of the restrictions around like campus being closed and access to campus. Um, but it's definitely something we wanted to start through the clubs program. Um, for uh, the international grad school, which is downtown, um, a little harder to, you know, put a soup freezer there and ensure that soup was getting there weekly. So something we did for international grad students, also knowing that these are international students who have like different dietary restrictions um, or students who are like, soup is new to me to have like daily or to like something that I am used to regularly consuming. Um, we provided like go-kart city grocery gift cards uh, so that those students could access groceries and and cook them the way they want to and like uh, eat the way that they're used to um, because we we recognize that giving um, like providing a free soup bar is great but if you are someone who like doesn't recognize any of these ingredients or has these dietary restrictions or um, your classes are during super hours, like it, it wasn't beneficial to them. So those are some of the things that we have tried to um, implement. Um, and, you know, previous to my position at Ignite, I did work at George Brown where they do have a really successful food bank that is in partnership with Second Harvest um, and like a good food market that happened every Wednesday. Um, we did a lot of the, uh, the goods that were accessed by students um, like were taken um, really great program, uh, but I know that a lot of the things that we had to, or some of the problems we ran into is like an abundance of, it's weird to say an abundance, but like things that would either go to waste or that we would give back to a food bank because students weren't accessing it. Um, so, uh, like such a great point, um, in career, you always have a great, great points. Um, and I, 
but a food bank isn't always the best solution. And I'm not saying the things that we are doing are, um, but uh, different ways we are, we, are, we are definitely trying to do that at, at Humber and UGH. Thank you. Thank you for all those different examples, um, Christine. Now, Suman, um, if you still remember what you're gonna say, you can go ahead. Awesome. No, thanks, Gabby. I think uh, I really like Christine's last point that uh, food banks are certainly not the right solutions on campuses. A lot of campuses. One because um, on my past, on my uh, passion, and in my free time, I run five food banks in Scarborough. So it's not that I don't I, I don't like food banks, but bottom line, food banks is not the solution. And especially on campuses, and I'll make that very clear because most of the food banks are very poorly funded across the country. Because most of the funding that is coming to run food banks is coming through students union, which is coming through your fees, which in principle is a problem anyways. However, with saying that, uh, most of the food banks end up in very poor amount of food or very poor choice of food because of that reason. However, if Humber really wants to have a food bank and there is enough students who really think there is a need, I think your first step will be, of course, get it approved by the students union and, and Ignite in this case to uh, sign off and say, yes, we want official, uh, officially a food bank, but also connect with your neighbor, Daily Bread Food Bank. If you can get a support from Daily Bread, you suddenly solve the problem of access to the quantity of food that you need. So second harvest is great because second harvest rescues food, but there is no guarantee how much food you're gonna get or what food you're gonna get. While with daily bread, you have a, almost a guarantee on the types of and the balance of the food. So that is, I think once the internal students union work is done, your next step is to see if you can get, and we recently opened Daily Bread recently supported the campus food bank at Centennial. And now Centennial College Food Bank is a Daily Bread food bank. They get weekly delivery dropped off. So they have that. So there is a model around it. So that could that should be your next step. Thank you. Sorry, I'm just reading some of the questions in the chat. Um, I don't know if anyone here um, from Humber would know um, is there a program with the Humber Room Culinary? Oh, uh, program with the Humber Room Culinary students in the Learning Garden at Humber North. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just typed in an, I just typed in a quick answer, but the answer is yes. I can't. I, none of these programs are run through Sustainability Office, so I can't say all the details of them. But I'm as I described, so inter it's all so interconnected that I have like enough knowledge about each one. So yes, the culinary students at North do spend time at least in a classroom, at least one of the courses. Um, they go out, they learn from, there's a greenhouse too. Like, And to be honest, that food learning garden kind of kicked off, I think it was summer 2019 and then COVID like what, eight months later. So food was still being grown there by one or two people and it was going mostly into soup bar um but i think we're all hopeful that we're going to have a lot more coming out of there the way we always planned it to be um 
starting this summer. But yeah, there's there's all these things that are happening, um, but they're not getting at the full issue, of course. Yeah, all right, I'll just this one more question and then uh, we're gonna have a break, all right? So go ahead, Cabrinha. All right, it's a bit of, I would say it's probably a bit more of a comment than a question. Uh, I respect exactly like what Suman uh, just mentioned in terms of it not obviously being the solution, but of course, like at the moment, uh, kind of what I'm hearing from students and what we're seeing on our campus, um, it'll certainly help. So I'll definitely like be looking into how to kind of do that process. So I appreciate you kind of giving me insight into that. Um, in terms of, I feel like it's always coming out of students' pockets. Um, as of, we've seen in the discussions that have been happening, Humber College is one of the most expensive um, colleges in Ontario. Um, we house some of the most uh, biggest population of international students. Students pay, and for some of our students from Ukraine, um, anywhere in $20,000 plus range where you know, it's three times or two, even four times more expensive than domestic students. And I don't think the solution is going to be coming out of the pockets of our students. And that's where kind of, I don't think I'm going to be a, a popular fan of anyone after this comment, but um, we also have to acknowledge that, for example, the president of our college this year in, uh, alone in his term finished as the highest paid college president in Ontario at $433,000. So I don't think that the solution is to take money out of the pockets of the students that are struggling, but rather, you know, when we think of donations and supporting politicians and um, people doing donations for whatever they do, you know, helping people um, with other programming or things like that. I did fundraising for about almost two years. And so I do know that some people give very generously and different people from uh, positions who make money like this, I'm sure do do donations. You shouldn't be investing in your own school with your own students. And I think students would really appreciate that if that support was coming from the people who make quite a bit, frankly. Um, and that's kind of my thoughts on that is if you want to donate to other places, why don't you just donate to your own food bank within your school to support your students if you truly care about them, then that could be something you would do out of the kindness of your heart. And it would still be a deductible tax if you want to make that something that's possible and register it then you get your money back a portion of it from the government at the end of the year when you claim it. Like a very interesting point. Um, and if this is something that you're like very passionate and very invested in, um, a way that you can address this um, would be like joining Ignite's board, having those conversations with like Humber's administration because you do have access um, to those rooms. Um, and depending on how you're able to like organize this initiative or maybe frame this in a certain way. You can even get the whole board on the same page as you and bring forward a proposal to Humber, like establish moving forward. We want to see the college taking those steps. Um, I believe some of those are very actionable items. They can be reached, they can be advocated for. Uh, it's really just a matter of attaining a certain level of perceived authority by others. Um, but yeah, like I, it's, it's really good to see your, your passion and I really hope that you're able to affect some change. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, so right now, um, we're going to have a 10 minute break. Um, so everyone can just fill their water bottles, go to the washroom, do whatever pet your cat may be. Um, and yeah, we're going to be back at, um, 707. Um, so, um, just before diving into the second part of the conversation, um, 
I really just wanted to, um, I guess, like remind everyone the the major reason we're here. Um, so we recognize how important it is to address um, the issue of food insecurity um, to changing food policy. So changing food policy is really important uh, and crucial to ensure that this is something that has long lasting impact. And so that's why we are releasing a signed letter to Minister Dunlop today that's calling on the province for specific food policy changes um, for um, colleges in, in Ontario more specifically. So uh, you can be, view that on our website. That's gonna be shared in the chat. Um, and yeah, just excited to take on that initiative and really hoping to see more um, action brought forward by the government. And so um, I hope everyone had a good break, uh, had some water, maybe some tea, honey, um, and that maybe you have some snacks with yourself as well. Snacks are always welcome. Um, now we're gonna talk about um, campus food insecurity challenges. Um, and again, if the, even if the question was not directed to you, you can always raise your hand and um, add to the conversation. So now I'm gonna direct my question to Christine. Um, as you already said, maybe you just probably just re-emphasize what you just, you just shared before. Um, Ignite has been supporting students who experience food insecurity for years now. Um, so maybe if you want to talk a little bit more about those initiatives and also the reason that um, set those initiatives in motion, like why did Ignite um, start to even pursue those things? Yeah, of course. Um, thank you for that question. Um, I think one of the most popular, well-known across campus is our uh, soup bar. Um, so when originally it launched, it was in person and you would help yourself. Um, and, uh, it was pay what you can, take what you need um, as many times as you needed to throughout the day as, as the soup bar was open and food was available. Um, uh, this helped uh, two things to prevent uh, food waste on campus because we know how much food just within the GTA um, gets wasted daily and just thrown out when there are people going to bed hungry. Um, but also so that students could access something nutritious, um, something affordable, something warm um, while they were on campus. Uh, limitations to this was that um, it happened three times a week and only at the North Campus um, and only during the lunch uh, rush. So, um, the pandemic uh, made us realize that uh, hunger continues, even though students are not on campus. Um, so we partnered with uh, the culinary students to provide um, frozen one liter containers of you know, food that they would be making in class or food that they could um, like easily be frozen and then reheated and 200 um, one liter containers would be stocked in each fridge on the North and Lakeshore campus for students to help themselves. Uh, the tricky part there was uh, students loading up backpacks um, and taking more than they needed. Um, and, you know, someone getting to the fridge um, just as hungry with, with nothing left. Um, so to to help combat that. And, and also knowing that not all students had access to campus during the pandemic. Um, 
you know, you were living anywhere within Ontario or even overseas and knowing that um, food insecurity will follow you wherever you are. Um, we launched a partnership with Soup Girl. So it mailed out um, uh, dried soup kits to these students so that they could, you know, make it as they needed it. And it went right to their doors and it was contactless. And all you had to do was sign up on our website. Um, this uh, was, no one needed to qualify. You just needed to be a student um, and, and want it. So easy enough to go onto the website and access that and we would mail it right to you. Um, and something that we've already mentioned, of course, is Go-Kart City. Um, so that was originally uh, piloted for our international grad schools, you know, just understanding your international students. Um, you're also downtown and uh, you, you're probably not going to go to the North Campus for one liter uh, a thing of soup. Um, and, and so this was a way that we could <clears throat> um, equip them with the funds to go and get food that they would be happy to consume, happy to cook. Um, and then we also partnered with uh, SWAC um, and the student, student intervention coordinators who, um, who uh, through speaking with students and connecting with students would be able to identify if there was, um, if they were experiencing any food insecurity and they would be able to provide them with um, a go card city um, gift certificate, like no questions asked as long as we could help that those are, the three things that um, we have been doing under our umbrella of like health and wellness, um, things that we are continuing to do on the advocacy front is um, ensuring that students on residence can access food um, that they are um, like dietary restrictions are being met, um, religious, um, like the things that they are able to consume um, and like culturally appropriate. Um, we think that cultural um, food that uh, someone wants to eat based on their culture, that that's access to food, right? And, and um, you know, we could absolutely give out um, bags of groceries to students, but like if someone receives that and has no idea how to prepare it, uh, no idea what it is or has an allergy to it, um, it could be triggering and we don't know how helpful that is. Um, so we found that the best way was to just, you know, go Kart City and, and that was a fantastic partnership there. Um, something that we we're hoping to do um, is partner with um, Too Good To Go, which is a, um, a very interesting app that is launching um, worldwide, it seems, um, and that's to prevent food waste. Um, and that's just partnering with grocery stores and restaurants. Um, it's not a secured partnership yet, but it's something we're definitely looking forward to. Um, and, and students, wherever you are living, can um, open up this app and see what restaurants and grocery stores are um, things that are absolutely edible, but not sellable. Um, and then you can get that at a, a discounted price and, and hoping to create a partnership where if you are a Humber or Guelph Humber student, you would just be able to access that. Um, and, and, you know, we, Mashonda and I sit on uh, the wellness and food committee on campus. Um, and, and, and Lindsay had mentioned how difficult it is to, um, you know, dream of something that seems like an excellent solution and all of the red tape and the weeds um, in order to get there. Um, so it seemed like a great idea to sit on this committee and say like, yeah, let's put 
affordable, healthy options in vending machines and then realizing that's not easy. Um, but it's uh, an interesting fight and one that Mashanda and I will, will continue to do. But, but yeah, like access to food on campus and, and students being hungry is, is unique in so many ways. And so those were the different ways that we um, are trying to combat that, knowing that tomorrow someone could, could come to us and be like, well, you didn't answer this. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And again, conversation organically already started to go towards my next question uh, when you touch on culturally representative food. So <laughs> thank you for mentioning that. Um, so this question, um, both um, Fatiga and Rawson can answer. Um, so what would you say, um, and anyone else as well has a valid answer, of course. Um, what are your thoughts on the importance of communities having access to culturally representative foods? And also what role do communal food activities like community gardens have in developing a community in establishing that sense of community? You can raise your hand if you're ready. Um, yeah. Okay, sure. Um, so sorry, your first question was, um, what's the importance of having uh, culturally diverse food and what is the importance of having communal activities? Are those the yes. two? Yes. Um, so I'll try and take a stab. Uh, so I think the importance of culturally diverse foods is that, you know, of course, when people, you know, I'm going to make the assumption that all of us here are settlers. Um, Sorry if anybody isn't, I'm just making that assumption. Um, but obviously as settlers, we do have a responsibility to build solidarity with um, the many indigenous nations that exist and the urban indigenous community that exists in our city as well. And so I think part of resisting, you know, white supremacy, capitalism, and other forms of oppression, um, two of those activities that are intimately tied to resisting, you know, those forms of oppression, our communal cooking sessions as well as and and kind of opportunities like community gardens and as well as having the kind of diversity to support um, culturally diverse produce like those two things are intimately connected um, but I would also say that I think a lot of times people tend to use community gardens as a way to co-op and also um, you know have it as an excuse to not actually put any action towards, you know, some of the barriers that exist, especially on campuses, right? People will be like, well, we have a community garden. So like, that's enough. It's like, no, it's not. You know, if we get to the root of, you know, diverse students, whether they're international students, domestic students, indigenous students, and students with disabilities, renters, like, you know, just the wide gambit of, of students that exist, um, you know, those folks do need to be represented in the campus food system. And so actually, um, Christine, I actually sat on the food user uh, committee at U of T Scarborough as well. So I'm like also familiar with that space and how it can be really frustrating when you're trying to make those, those changes and those recommendations and it, they're getting just caught up in red tape. Um, and so thankfully, you know, you can find some allies in that space and make that happen. But you know, I just think that 
often like workshops or community gardens, like these are all great pop-up events and, and they are important and necessary, which is why, for example, at Foodshare, like, you know, we all invite chefs all the time, whether they're from, you know, the Caribbean or whether they're from just other communities across Toronto to take an ingredient and be able to showcase what they can do with it based on their, you know, cultural cuisine. Um, so we do have activities like that because I think it's important to have people know what to do with their produce and have their cultures represented, especially for me when I first moved out. I didn't know how to make Bengali food. I'm from Bangladesh. I didn't know how to make Bengali food. So part of that process was really important. But at the same time, I think those sort of initiatives around like community gardens or workshops or pop-ups, they need to be tied, especially on campus. They need to be, I would think, um, they need to be tied to broader um, initiatives to put more money in the hands of students to be able to afford food on campus, whether that's credits, whether that's bursaries, whether that's, you know, you know, whatever that looks like that is the most accessible for students. I think that needs to happen because I think you just can't have these sort of workshops in in isolation. Um, so of course they're important, but they have to be tied to advocacy initiatives to be able to really garner that kind of traction um, to make them long lasting and not just have them as like pop-up pop events. Yeah, and just bouncing off just what Patia said so excellent, excellently, um, I feel like, you know, in, in my research of things, that food's always been a point of connection, connection to self, connection to the past, connection to the future, and I feel like, um, yeah, I like, to, I like to look at things in terms of, like, tangible examples. It's the best way that things operate in my head. So I remember something that really touched me was if anyone's ever read the book Crying in H Mart, it's, it's centralized around the author, the author's mother dies, and the whole beginning part is her going through H Mart, looking at all these Korean foods and, and crying. And that's being that was a part of the morning process with her too. So I think that food has such a powerful sense of nostalgia and love that goes with it. So when it comes to that, those, those are not things that, you know, they're great in isolation too, but aren't those things that you want to share with your community as well? So um, I think that when it comes to food as a place of gathering, communal acts like community gardens. Um, there's this article that was really great. I'm going to link, or I'm not going to link, I'm going to credit the authors here. Um, the funny part is that, is that I would, I, I'd share the link to the article, but I don't think anyone can read it because you have to pay for it. Um, but the article was all about uh, Latino community gardens in uh, New York City. And basically what the findings were, um, was that community gardens were established in places that were predominantly Latino Hispanic communities. And then what had happened with that was that first the activity began began as gardening, but then slowly over time, it became um, a venue for places like parties or holidays. And then even from there, it spread even further to, uh, it really got people together to coordinate civic action from it too. So I think that when you have communal group food related activities, that's a great kind of starting point to find people who are maybe similar or maybe different than you gathered together for this one interest. But what's beautiful from it is that you know, obviously it can be a fun activity where you do things together, but you can also grow from it too and find a deeper sense of um, connection to your community. Amazing. That's awesome. So cool. Toronto has a similar um, garden as well, but I believe it's like more for the Tibetan community, the Milky Way garden. It is incredible. Um, I did some research on it, so highly recommend looking at that. They have like communal land ownership, which is very cool. 
Uh, Christine, go ahead. Um, so I'm lucky enough in my position to oversee the like student run clubs and associations as Korea had mentioned. Um, and I would say 90% of the requested um, club activity is centered around food. Um, I would say more than 50% of our clubs are culture, cultural clubs. Um, so a uh, sense of belonging, um, uh, a way to, to survive when you are in a brand new country um, and, and to understand and where you fit in and how you're, you are more than welcome to bring your culture with you. Um, many of the requests um, and, and the Ukrainian Students Club is a great example is um, uh, being able to provide a meal that you recognize um, that's the best way a student can feel safe or feel at home. Um, we know that uh, with international students, the dropout rate because they want to go back home or um, being isolated and without their family is like, those are the, the top reasons why they don't complete their studies and be like having something that represents their culture and, um, and, and food is like the, the biggest thing, uh, keeps them motivated to stay. So um, they're, they're the easiest uh, club requests for me to approve. Um, but yeah, like what an interesting way to have gathered that data. Yeah, definitely. I still remember very dearly the one time I went to campus, like I, I've been studying for four years now. So like one day, there was a Brazilian event with Brazilian snacks. And I was like, yes. So it definitely makes a mark on you. Um, and it, it, it feels good. You feel appreciated through food. So I think it's, it's a great way to like touch people and connect them. Um, now, uh, moving a um, question for you, Michelle Nadal. So uh, you have a really strong background, many paid forward activities giving back to your community through volunteering, group projects, and also starting your own nonprofit to address some of those deep-seated issues like poverty and food insecurity. So what role do you think students have in influencing their broader communities on those big issues like food insecurity? And how would you recommend students to get involved? As we already saw, students here attending today, they're very interested in taking more action. So what are ways you would say that people can get involved in this? Sure. I think I'll start with the last question first, just so we're easy. I think like the best way to get involved is, you know, like being here, like going to events like these, sessions like these and educating yourself. I think it's important to educate yourself and also um, getting involved. Just know that, just for example, someone that, that had that deal with food insecurity, there's not a, there's not a look, there's not a face that represents food insecurity because, my personal background, I have lived experience with food insecurity. I grew up in Jamaica with a mom, single mom who was like, you know, do I pay the bills today or do I buy food today? You know, or, or if I buy food today, do we have enough for tomorrow? Do we cook all of it today? You know, there's no seconds. There's no, oh, can I have another one? So I think understanding that the most important thing is like, your neighbor could be suffering, you deal with food insecurity. But I think also in terms of education, it's um, knowing that food security, it doesn't mean that, a person might be eating because in sometimes in my case we were eating 
but we weren't eating stuff that was nutritious for us. We were just eating stuff to say we were eating, to say like, you know, to, to say that we were eating, that, we, you know, we, we go to bed hungry, but it wasn't the, the stuff that was for us. And myself, I'm divorcing a mom for, two, for 12 years with my kids. I mean, during those 12 years, um, past 12 years, I've had food insecurity as well. And again, it's just like educating yourself, understanding too. And also, I think one of my biggest things is to be kind, you know, because everybody's going through something. So even in, even educating yourself and learning about it, like go from empathy lens. I would say one of my biggest thing is empathy lens um, in terms of stuff that you can do for the community. So for me, in my personal experience, I my lived experience, I do do a lot of um, pay forward events where I donate to shelters, um, youth shelters, survivors into my partner violence, and they're, they're awesome from my personal experience. But for me, in going to that, some of the things I decided to do was not only so donate, donate your time, which is a big thing. Donate your time is a big thing, and I do, I do that a lot of times. Also, like you know, advocating as well, like advocating for them in your community tell your community about them you know up avoid the voices of those you know because a lot of time people who are going through stuff like there's a lot of stigma around it anyways and a lot of time people are going through these things it's embarrassing enough because you never think you'd find yourself in that situation so i think that if you can come together and talk about these things and these stigmatize that it will help a lot too and i would just say like um yeah, just find ways that you can do. And one other thing is like, know that you can make a difference. Cause I think oftentimes, like even going back to the last part of the question, oftentimes we think we want to do something about certain things. And we we think that, okay, I can't do it because just one person, just myself. But knowing that it takes one person to make a difference. And um, so I think for me, ultimately just like, you know, um, do what you can and educate yourself, advocate, avoid the voices, destigmatize it and just know that insecurity doesn't have a face like you know it could be your, it could be your neighbor it could be your family member so always deal with that empathy lens yes amazing thank you um okay so now moving to the final question that i have for the panel today um for suman so from your experience supporting student leaders all across Canada, would you say that there is an untapped opportunity gap or maybe some root cause that we're missing as of now? Um, because we see that student security is only growing um, and there are very strong community programs. So we see action happening, but why, why are we not seeing student security rates changing at the same rate as community action? Great question, Gabby. I think the biggest challenge that we have is way too many times student hunger and student food insecurity is romanticized in every level. And we as Meal Exchange, when we speak to funders and donors and we talk about that, and I can't even tell you, and even some campus administrators have said, oh, when I was a student, I had the same problem, but that's the life. That's the way they will learn, which is itself is a huge issue. And I think that narrative needs to change uh, very fast. And that is something that's preventing the growth on the student side. But also keep in mind that in a post-secondary campus, students are very transient. Uh, whatever traction you gain, then the students are gone. A new student comes in and they start from scratch. And in my past life before meal exchange, while ago, I did work 
on a private company who used to serve, who used to be on campuses. And one, it was a untold mantra for us. All you got to do is just survive the year and then there's a new student. It's a new beginning like already. So that being transient and not enough continuation causes a lot of issues for the student movement to proceed. While in the community, it's a different conversation. Even now, if you look at the governments, tell, tell me one government in provincial federal level across the country who really is talking about food security for post-secondary students. Nobody, but because of pandemic, we heard the federal government giving millions and millions of dollars to food banks. But how many of those really came to a campus level food bank? Negligible. As meal exchange, we tried to grab it as much as we could and we gave out gift cards to students across the country, but it was like 0.0001% of what actually was given out. Because post-secondary students, though it is such an important demographic, they do not hit the political agenda of a lot of political parties. Just because students are busy, students have their courses, they don't have the time always to go out. And now with everything else that's going on, the time is of essence. They do not get to go out and really make the noise that others can do in the community. And that I think personally is one of the reasons why students are always ignored. However, high not high school, but uh, elementary school students, it's a different conversation because the parents are fighting for it, not the students. But in post-secondary, parents are not fighting for it. Post-secondary students are adults, they're grown up, they are on their own, so and they don't have the time or even the experience and the expertise to actually fight those battles. That's why in this file, it is so difficult to move the boundaries from here to here. Awesome, thank you. Yes, go ahead, Kadia. I just really wanna say thank you to Suman for saying what you just said that last, especially that last portion because he has a really good point in terms of um, when you're younger, you have someone else fighting for you as you get older, that's less present. Um, I actually um, have the opportunity to be a part of the Indigenous community here at um, Humber College. Um, and so Jason Seawright, he's our Dean of Indigenous Education and Engagement. And um, he's been working really hard for the last so many years while he's been here at Humber, advocating and being that person that the Indigenous students need. And uh, he's been working in, uh, with Lynn Short. She actually works as like a mentor here at Humber um, for technology and advancement learning in horticulture and whatnot. And we actually found out, and the only reason we did was because like talked and we were talking about the issues of food insecurity that here at Lakeshore, we actually had a small plot of land and we were talking about how students can access that. And we actually just recently finished this past week um, learning how to uh, plant tobacco seeds and then the importance of that and bringing community together. And a lot of the things that like, I've noticed that, that Jason does that I think are really wonderful is that he works with external and internal partners. And even though let's say at Humber, there's something that's not necessarily because of the red tape getting approved right away, you know, we seek those external partners in order to continue to help Help those students get advocated for but also something I've noticed too through the Indigenous Centre here at Humber is that regardless if you graduate you're still invited to come to a lot of the programs so you're not kind of left out in the wind like once you leave the school because you've now built those structures and those supports and you've gotten accustomed on how to navigate the system but then once you leave you now find yourself kind of like in that feeling of like oh no I'm isolated I don't know what to do I don't have those supports so compared to other sectors and other programs 
the Indigenous Centre invites you to come back and invites you to come back and learn more or how to stay connected. And you can still access like those tracts of lands and we can still participate. There's that better interconnectedness, whereas with other programs, I've noticed that isn't the case. And so I think Suman has a really good point that needs to be like, held to a higher standard, especially when we talk about politicians, because they don't, they're not, they don't, they're not there to care for us and to, to, to make any advancements. And that always falls on the students, but like, as with myself, and I think for a lot of students, there's just the lack of time and you need to prioritize. Cause if you don't, you'll fall behind in one area in school. And then you kind of like trip yourself up for the remaining of the semester. Whereas like you're, ability to eat is something that's tied intricately in with like your ability to succeed. So I just, I wanted to say that I appreciated what he said and just to highlight kind of the work the Indigenous Center is doing. Cause like personally, I see how it's benefiting students in my class as well. Um, and also in other programs that I've met at the center. And so I just thought I'd highlight that because like it could give ideas to Humber on how to maybe work with the center in order to kind of replicate that for other students from other cultural backgrounds. Because again, we do have like those gardens available but I don't necessarily like hear about people using them but at the center like we're really trying to push that I've noticed more this year but because with COVID we hadn't had the opportunity so I just wanted to put that out there that was a great addition thank you so much for sharing that like I think it's really important to point out you said how when we're in college or university whatever we have this um, supportive network that's uh, provided by the institution itself. And once you graduate, that may just suddenly be cut out. So I think that's a really important thing that we also have to focus on. Like, how can we make that transition or how can we ensure that there is a long-term support for students as they graduate? Because you really create a sense of community and then graduating can be very stressful because you see that community is going away as soon as you get your diploma, as soon as you get a degree. So yeah, I think that, that was a really great point. And also, yes, kudos to Indigenous Education and Engagement. They're incredible. Uh, they do amazing work at Humber. Yes, Vishanda, go ahead. Um, yeah, I just want to say I agree with you a little bit, but I think sometimes too, there are, um, I get it, because I know so for Humber, I'm a two-time Humber grad, so, um, you know, I still keep in touch with my faculty. I'm from criminal justice, but you know, so there are those students that are willing to um, want to start something. Like from for in my case, for example, I was a mature student. I created first mature events Umber ever had because I I felt I needed a space that represents me, and I ended up creating a mature student club, and it's still going on. But I feel like you you have a lot of students that really want to start this great initiative. And I think some are willing to come back, but I think sometimes um, the probably the, the, their faculty don't let it don't let it be known that you can come back, you can do these things. Whereas in my faculty that I was previous from, both different faculties, I'm very involved still. I still go in, I still you know I still have those communication, I still keep in contact and checking different things. So I think it's like you know making sure. That, students like if you want to start this initiative, like even though you're not a student here, you're still welcome here to keep it going. And also be, for example, be a role model or be like a, a, a um, I'm trying to think of the words, I can't think of, like a mentor for, for, for others coming in so that you can, so that even if you can stay on full-time or whatever, you can give a lot of your time, then those that you mentor can come on. So if you keep on paying it forward, because I believe in paying everything forward that you have. And if you have students that come in and want to stay there and you tell that you can stay here, you can do this initiative and stay here and then they mentor someone else and it, it keeps going the chain keeps on going and then there there can become change but i think too if you don't let them 
know that that that, that there's a possibility that it's not going to happen. And I think, and I think another thing too that I realized too, I know what you're saying about students because I have two young kids that are in schools right now, and you know you get a twenty dollars, you get the notice every term for the twenty dollars to pay for a nutritious lunch, and if you don't, if you don't pay that twenty dollars, you're still getting it. There, it's like you know. Where my son goes to school, at least there's no, it's like no child left behind, you know, because they're still going to get it if you don't pay that $20. But I feel like in institutions, a lot of times, so they kind of negate it. They don't really pay attention that, you know, they just assume that we are adults and we should have it together sometimes. So I think sometimes they forget that and they don't like, you know, say, okay, they can, probably could be facing put insecurities or doing these things, you know, because we don't, sometimes it's embarrassing to talk about certain things that you're going through, your experiences and to vocal, you know. I'm this person where like, you know, I'm going to be as desperate as I can and tell you what it is. Like, this is what I'm going through. You know, a lot of my friends, they're not that way. They're afraid to, to say, you know, and eat properly this morning and do these things this morning. So I think sometimes too, it's just like, you know, vocalizing so people can know that, you know, this is what we're facing and how can you help me? But I think to, to advocate for yourself, to be a self-advocate for yourself or to just, to just speak up and let your vote not be silenced, it takes a lot of courage. And I think sometimes it's hard. So it's like, you know, what do you do in those instances? Yes, yes. Okay, um, so when I see you have your hand raised, so maybe you just add a little bit to the conversation, but then there's also a question I want to address in the chat once you're done. Go ahead. Sounds good. Uh, just a quick thing, Mishanda, because your kids, your children get food, whether you pay the $20 or not, uh, wholeheartedly the thanks needs to go to food share. Because in 80s, when Mayor Art Eggleton was the mayor, it was uh, Debbie Field and the team at FoodShare is the one who started this universal school food program. And I think it is really important to understand that it's possible. But also on the post-secondary level, Meal, Meal Exchange just did extend research globally to see where is there a proper progressive food policy around uh, food access for post-secondary students. And there are some amazing stories coming out of Finland France, even China, you believe it or not, of progressive food policy for post-secondary students. Every student in Finland pays one euro to get a healthy meal once a day, a healthy, wholesome meal. Every post-secondary student, just think that through. And they have the same model like we have in Canada. We have provincial and federal uh, working towards this. There they have municipal and federal, but they have a two-layer system, but they have figured out how to make it work. France has figured out how to make it work. China has figured out how to make it work. Why in Canada are we held back? It's a political will. Yes, thank you for adding that. Um, so I'm just gonna read the question that was sent in the chat. Um, how as students can we hold food service providers accountable? It seems that even when pressure is applied, there is no change. The issue of food insecurity continues to rise. Do you want me to take that? <laughs> I can start that conversation because this is really close to my heart. I spent eight years working for Sodexo as a national corporate chef for campuses. So I know that side of the economy really well. Um, so one thing that I strongly, strongly say is if you really want a proper change in your food system, you need to have your campus administrators on board. If you don't have them on board, you will never be able to get a proper systemic change. You might get a little bit here and there to keep you quiet and that is possible, but you will never get proper change unless 
your campus administrator backs you up because at the end of the day, you got to realize the Chartwells who runs uh, Humber, it's a for-profit company. I don't blame them for trying to make their profit. That is, they have a responsibility for their shareholders and they're doing their job. But the campus administrators needs to do their job to stand up for the students and said, these are our students and they deserve better. And they need to create contracts that actually focuses on student well-being and what students really need. That's just my opinion. Rockton, you can go ahead. Yeah, so just to give a very small semi-related example from X University back when I went, um, I, I will preface this by saying this is not related to food insecurity, but in more sense of food change. And like what Suman was saying, it absolutely depends on if you can get the business operations or whoever the, the food orchestrating it on Humber would be. Because back in the day, we had these kiosks in um, throughout the school and these kiosks would be Tim Hortons kiosks. So uh, eventually, I think, I think for whatever reason, they already needed to be renovated in some type of way. But then um, at the same time, perhaps it was a perfect storm. Students were already complaining about, um, not complaining, sorry, I shouldn't say, well, I mean, yeah, they were complaining, rightfully so. No, they were like, so they were advocating for more local and sustainable foods as well as cheaper and more affordable options. But in, in regard to the local and sustainable option, that became one of the higher voted things of what they wanted. So I remember they, there was a consultation that eventually took place between the Ryerson business operations team and then a bunch of student groups that were really pushing for that. And ultimately what ended up happening was that the kiosks within the school buildings, not the separate Tim Hortons buildings on campuses, but the, the, the five, I believe, five, five to eight kiosks were replaced by um, local businesses opening up their own little uh, remote satellite locations there as well. And I think it's also important to keep in mind too that when we did take away the Tim Hortons options, we went from maybe let's say like um, five bucks for a cookie and a coffee or something like that. But then eventually because it was local as well, it did become closer to $10 for a coffee and cookie. So there was a price change there too. But just to say again that I think sometimes it does take a perfect storm for things to change. But as well, I think, I think maybe perhaps you shouldn't be too discouraged by not hearing a lot of action right away because I, I think sometimes when things bubble up, they, they can lead to something. But I can totally understand. It takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of emotion emotional labor rather to push these projects further so i think yeah you should keep keep at it even if it's not paying off right now yeah um yeah michanda would you like to add anything yeah i'm just gonna say um in terms of um mr Suman was saying about um your administrators um i think that is true um because i remember for me um i know humber they for Christmas time, for example, they tend to donate to all these big organizations or you get so much support already. And I remember for me, this is not like, uh, this, is, this is full security, but not in, within a Humber College itself for the students there. But I remember a couple of years when I was a student a few years back, I had wanted to do a um, a food drive for to donate to, to children that I know probably would not have food for Christmas or toys, whatever it is. And I mean, you're going to administrate just to get approval to even run a uh, food drive collect from students was a big, like a big deal. It was a big thing. I remember going at the drum through so many different channels, so many different hoops. Like, you know, I got like t t 10 no's. I would email the one person all the time that could say, that could give me to go ahead. And he would tell me no, like four times. And then last time I was just like, I think you should meet me in person first before you tell me no. And 
it was it was me you know actually going there just like, a, like I'm a business person but I was a student there but you know just you know presentation and going there and you know show them all the facts and you know why this is necessary show them all the research and I think then that that really helped me so I think if students really want to push for this which I think they should you know they have to be able to like you know keep going because you're gonna hear a lot of no's there are gonna be a lot of no's a lot of no's but to keep going keep fighting for it because this is something that is needed and even um you know, in terms of Humber, I think they're trying to do like, for example, replace all the the unhealth, unhealthy stuff that they have for um, at it, the machines right now. I remember one of the students said to me, you know, uh, she was like, this is like asking us to quit cold turkey. Because they're like, you know, you don't ask us what we want. We don't just replace something. Ask us what we want. Like let our voice, we, we, are, we are students here. We're, at what point do, do our voices count? So I think that's a big thing. Just you know, get make sure you're listening to your students. Listen to your students and listen to what they want. And the administrator, you know, do your due diligence, do the research, and listen to them. Provide proper food. Not like nobody should go to school in this. We are in. We are in Canada. We are in this. Country. It's supposed to be a very rich country. We are in Canada. It's not like Jamaica. You know, it's not like other countries. Like I'm now in my country, Jamaica. Kids are going to school. They're getting lunch. They're getting everything like that. Like some some places. This is a Canada, a country that have a lot of money that, you know, that always, you know, promoting everything that is good. It doesn't matter what age you are. You should not be going to school hungry or not having proper food to eat. It is wrong. First of all, it messes with your education, messes with your brain, everything else. So I think that like Umber, we need to take a stand to say like, you know what, we are going to take a stand and make sure that all of our students no longer face food insecurity. Yes, yes, amen to that. So, man, go ahead. Uh, just a quick one line. I think uh, one thing that is really important for all the students to understand that people in the administration and all, they have their job because you are paying your tuition fees. And don't go in meekly as you're begging because food is a right. You're not begging for good food. It is your right to have access to good food. Go with that mentality. And I think that is what your confidence and that is what it's important. A hundred percent. Yes. Especially international students. Like we provide more money to colleges than the government currently. So very interesting thing to be aware of. Our power, purchasing power. And yeah. Um, so we, again, naturally move towards a Q&A period as in the schedule. So uh, I'm going to give people more option, more chances to uh, raise their hands if they have questions, um, either students participating or panelists, if you have questions for, for one another, um, you can do so right now. No questions right now. Everyone is just speechless. <laughs> I do have a question, um, something that I thought of as we were just starting our conversation earlier today, and I believe you might be able to address it. Oh my God, my voice. Um, so, because um, Lindsay was saying how many times the contract at Humber is something that is very limiting to, to changing, to addressing some of the student concerns. And because we are here to think about, you know, like um, putting pressure on the government to to have more policies on this, 
do, do you think it's possible to eventually have a policy that establishes some standards for those contracts? Because those are very rigid things and they're very difficult to advocate for because it's at such a high level within the institution. So do you see eventually a policy that um, puts some standards on how those contracts have to be handled? Yes and no. Um, the contracts are very complicated. I've worked with, in my career, I've worked with at least 45 to 50 contracts uh, across the country. They're very complicated because there are million dollar lawyers sitting behind the computer trying to go around and make the contracts work better for whosoever benefit. However, I think the key when we talk about policy is to set up a standard, not, for, not only for the contract, but a standard as to what food needs, needs to look like. And at that point, it doesn't matter who the contractor are, doesn't matter what kind of contract it is, what kind of language it is, the focus goes on that the food needs to be X standard for students. So absolutely there is. However, also we need to understand the economy piece to it too. Campuses across the country relies on provincial funding. So if the government comes and says that you have to give everybody a meal for $1, the campus is going to look at them and say, how? So it, so it is a full circle. When the government makes regulations, they need to come with a solution. And that is why I, in the beginning I said, and I keep on advocating for this, food service needs to get out of ancillary because ancillary or business services across all campuses are a zero doubt account, no profit, no loss. While student life is subsidized by the campus. And food being so important to education, which is the primary reason an institution exists, we all know, then there is no reason why food should not be important. So as soon as it can be advocated to move into student life, immediately that opens up funding door from the province to the campus and to the campus to actually food. And it can be done in different ways. We are currently meal exchanges working on a policy proposal that we are going to present, uh, we are working through uh, to our next summit, which we are trying to figure out and we're doing research at this point, how we can convince the government without adding added funds, how they can change their current subsidy program or current allocation program to actually provide some kind of a subsidy to either the students union or the campuses to provide food for the students in, a, in an economic manner. So we are working on that and we are taking some models that is uh, globally uh, working. So I think something like that is absolutely doable, but it's really hard without to come to a for-profit company and say, oh, I don't care how you make your money or you lose your money, you need to do this. It is really hard to do that. Yeah, yeah, very difficult to navigate. We need a lot of effort from people with a lot of expertise on how to address those. Um, so I'll, I'll give everyone a chance again. Um, any questions emerged, anything maybe you want some more clarity on, uh, you can either raise your hand, you can ask in the chat, and then I can raise your question. Okay, I guess everyone is just speechless after this incredible and very long conversation. 
Um, so I'm really thankful to everyone that joined us today. Some people already left because uh, everyone is busy. Um, so I really, really appreciate your time here, uh, your efforts and those amazing answers and the work that you do. Um, it, it's really inspiring just like being in a room with people that address this um, because it is very hard. There are so many um, barriers, so many limitations, so many no's that you hear. So just being inspired by everyone else's efforts, like it, for me at least, it's a very big motivator. Um, so I really appreciate that as well as the students we have attending, the questions that you pose and experiences you share. I also appreciate that very much. And I, I'm pretty sure you're gonna be future panelists of future events because that, that's how you get started. Um, I hope everyone here um, had um, the chance to learn something new as well. Um, so yeah, just thank you so much. Um, and just a reminder that elections are coming up in June. So make an informed choice, know who you're voting for, what their platform stands up for, hold your elected leaders accountable. Is how we can affect change. Um, so yeah, for more resources, Trevor will share some stuff in the chat. If anyone wants to share their own websites or any way how to connect, feel free to do that right now. Um, and yeah, just overall a huge thank you to everyone who was here today.